Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. Did you get rich this week buying GameStop stock? I did not. I watched it from a uh, fascinating level of 10,000 feet and did not even get close. Another chance where we could have become billionaires and we just didn't take part in it, I guess, huh? Yeah, we would be in the suckers saying that GameStop's really not that good of an investment. Or we would be the suckers that would buy on Monday this coming week where it's too late, it's all going down, and I don't know. But I just thought, man, that would have been another chance. I know a former student who took my money investments class did make some money doing GameStop. And uh, shout out to Nikolai, Nikolai, Nikolai Vladi. He's made some money. So he's uh, he knows more about investing than I do now. I thought you were going to say Nikolai Volkov, which was the uh, <laughs> Russian uh, pro wrestler back in the 80s. Partnered with the Iron Sheik. He did. He did. Well, it was interesting because the GameStop thing happened, but this week you sent me a really interesting article from the New Yorker that was just sort of a review of work, how we work and how work has changed in the minds of Americans. And here's the best paragraph I read. Meaningful work is an expression that had barely appeared in the English language before the early 1970s. Once upon a time, it was assumed, to put it bluntly, that work sucked. That started to change in the 1970s when managers began informing workers that they should expect to discover life's purpose in work. With dollar compensation no longer the overwhelming most important factor in job motivation, the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange wrote, management must develop a better understanding of the more elusive, less tangible factors that add up to job satisfaction. After a while, everyone was supposed to love work. Do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life popped up all over the place in the 1980s and 90s, along with the unpaid internship, the busting of unions and campaigns to cut taxes on capital gains. It soon became in Silicon Valley and on Wall Street a catchism. The only way to do great work is to love what you do. Steve Jobs told a graduating class at Stanford in 2005, if you love what you're doing, it's not work. David M. Rubenstein, a CEO of the Carlyle Group, said on CNBC in 2014, Everywhere you look, you hear people talking about meaning. A disillusioned Google engineer said, they aren't philosophers, they aren't psychologists, they're selling banner ads. It's not pointless, but it's not poetry. Still, does it have to be? And Don, it was just a fascinating article, a fascinating review of history about how Americans have gotten to the point now where we have the gig economy, we've got people that just sort of do a job and then are done with it, and how things have changed. What did you think about it? It struck a couple of notes with me. I mean, I, when I first was a, when I first started teaching in 1999, I saw an article from with quote from Dustin Hoffman saying how your work should be your passion, it should be your love, and every day should be a blessing of going to work. And I loved it, and I cut it out, and it sat on my desk in front of right in front of my eyes for 20 years. And it was only in reading this article that I started to think again about: Is work really our passion? Is this a substitute for compensation? Do we have this need or is it legitimate to even view it that way? I can remember being eight years old, sitting with my mom in a car and we were driving. She's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, I was throwing out the typical eight-year-old answers, firemen, policemen, any job that I'd ever probably be seen. And I remember my mom giving me the same spiel of, well, you need to figure out what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, right? That's something that probably you and I have told students every once in a while and hey, I do think some people are able to find that job or that career where they legitimately love going to work. They legitimately feel like they're not working when they go there. But I also feel like there's a lot of people, and I think a majority of people that feel maybe the exact opposite or not pure love, at least. I think that they feel friction when they go to work. I think they like certain parts of their job. And I kind of wonder if we sort of have talked about the idea of go to college, right? You'll, you'll solve all of your life's problems there. And as we know, that's not exactly working out. I feel like in a way we are setting up people that when they finally go to work, it's like, oh, this isn't just this magical place. Well, they, the expectation is pretty high now that you should feel really fulfilled. And actually, I was talking to my friend who manages a lot of people. And I said, how's it working with these millennials? He said, well, they need to hear that they're doing a great job. And every week I head down to that part of the business and I say, hey, you're doing a great job down here. Our company is great because of what you're doing right here and you are fantastic. And then he walks back upstairs to his office. And he says, if he does that once a week, he gets no complaints from that department and they work really well, but they need to feel fulfilled and that they're making a difference. And I don't, maybe that's that generation that came up with this idea. Not that you and I didn't, 
By the way, when my parents asked me that question, I wanted to be a garbage man because they hung off the back of the truck and they're outside all day. That sounded pretty good to me. Yeah, I always thought roofer was the one because they got to work with their shirts off. Although I don't think anybody wants to see me on a roof with my shirt off now or ever really in my whole life. But Nor um, have you actually done roofing. I've done my own roof and that was plenty enough to say, no, I don't want to do roofing. Oh, it seems like very difficult work, that's for sure. But you bring up the idea of basically people needing to feel like they're doing a good job. And a book I read a couple of years ago was fascinating, was called Drive by Daniel Pink. And he explores the idea of motivation and how do you get people to feel motivated? And he kind of brings it down to like three things. And he says, people need to feel autonomy. They need to feel like they're making their own choices on their own time schedule in order to work on something. They need to feel mastery. They need to feel like they're learning something, like they're improving on their skills. And they also need to feel purpose, feeling like they are a part of the end result, seeing that end result. And that kind of hits what you were saying about the millennials needing to feel like they're doing a good job, right? Doesn't that hit that purpose part of it? And is it possible that work has changed because a lot of jobs don't necessarily give people those three aspects. Well, yeah, and I think we're all looking for it. It's not just millennials who have been fed this since they were little kids, but we are looking to feel like we're effective. And that's what people like about work. That's why people that work are less likely to be depressed than people that are out of work. The times when I feel good at work is feel like when I'm doing a good job, when I'm doing something, getting something done. Oftentimes I feel more so when I'm building something than when I am in the classroom. But nevertheless, in the classroom at times, it's like, okay, well, we got this. And kids understood this concept. And that matters more to me than the praise from the kids. Not that I don't appreciate the praise, but I really am more fulfilled by seeing the kids understand things. It's that top of the Maslow's pyramid, which by the way, was never a pyramid when Maslow made it. But the point is that it, you feel like you're done, you've done something, that you've created something. I think that's when people can enjoy their work, but I don't think we necessarily need to tap dance to work as Warren Buffett says he does. My favorite part of being a teacher is creating lessons, trying to take archaic material that I know I've got to try to get a 12 year old to learn and trying to figure out a lesson that might be interesting for that kid or bring up an interesting question. And I always love that part. And I've always thought about how I have so much autonomy in my job to think on that realm and how it makes my day feel pretty fulfilling. And then to be able to see that purpose right at the end to see if kids, if it worked or not with kids, or as you said, to get some feedback from them. It's always nice when you get feedback from parents or when you do get feedbacks from administration and stuff like that. I would say the hardest part is when you go to meetings, right? And sometimes you're not quite sure what the meeting is about or how this meeting fits in any sort of part of your day, but that you're at the meeting. And I could see where that starts to kind of gum things up. But then I also just thought there's a lot of jobs where people are just told, this is how you're going to do your job. And you don't really have a lot of autonomy. And they do a great job in this article talking about line workers in a factory and how all of a sudden the line just keeps coming and your one skill or your one part of the line is all you do all day. You never see the end of it. You never see the beginning of it. And you don't really have a lot of choice about how you're doing that specific thing. And I could see where there's that quote unquote, like dehumanizing element of the line or of a job where you're just in the middle of it all. And it seems like there are more jobs like that than your Steve Jobs job, right? Where he's just sitting in a room with whiteboards and thinking up new ideas of technology. And the best part is he doesn't actually have to go and do the part of like, well, go make an iPad. Like somebody else does that. He just has to tell them to make it. Yeah, absolutely. And the endless, the uh, quote by the worker is something like the line is endless. People have worked their whole lives and never seen the end of the line because they don't get to see the finished product. And I was mentioning this last night to my wife, who's wiser than I. And she said that well, that's why they move them. They're not doing the same job all day long. They move from place to place and do different jobs on the line. But even then, they're not really seeing the end product. I guess it's the end product, which makes me feel better. Every job is different, right? And obviously, in this article, they talk about how, hey, the part of the compensation is money. And it's not about you being able to feel purpose towards the job. And I think that that's one of the major maybe disconnects in this whole thing is people want something more. They've done studies where there's a certain amount of money that people can make and then they are happy and they actually now want to feel fulfilled doing something else. And it seems like a lot of jobs are, are falling short or people are going to work and after a longer period of time, they're realizing they don't feel very fulfilled, but they have to keep going to the job. And I guess my question is, is this actually a concern? Because I was sort of like, 
I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, you're still being compensated to go there. You don't have to go to your job. And is it a shame on all of us for trying to find meaning in our job? Uh, I think it's harder to find meaning when you're an hourly employee because the jobs I've had, even jobs recently working for grading papers or whatever, then it's paid hourly. It's just like, wow, I just put an hour into that. Was it really worth 20 bucks? Like this is all I missed out on. As opposed to a salary job where you're just, this is just what you do. And you don't think about it because the compensation goes into your bank account, then it goes out to pay bills and whatnot. And so you don't have to think about that day, hour to hour thing. But ultimately, I think we have to find meaning and it doesn't, we don't necessarily have to be fulfilled. We're not Steve Jobs. We're not changing the world tremendously. We are looking for something that says, all right, I did this. It worked. I got it done. I'm home. I'm on to the next thing. And that is what we should look for. And any job I've had, really, I've felt some degree fulfilled in that I'm working with some people, having an okay time. This wasn't that bad. I can't think of many jobs I've had where I thought, gosh, this is just awful and I hate the people around me. And by the way, the article talks about that as well, being around people you enjoy. And I don't know about you, but when I'm teaching a class and there's kids that are energetic and ask good questions and are funny and engaged, that class flies by. I look forward to that class. The classes that I can't stand are the ones with 20, 30 silent kids just staring at me who won't answer a question, who don't have any provoking thoughts, who don't laugh at my jokes, who don't have funny things to say themselves. Those are the ones that's brutal. I teach the good ones for free. You make a really good point. I remember five years into my career, I got displaced and uh, there wasn't a spot for me at the school that we once worked at together. And I always remember the part that was the hardest was knowing that I wasn't going to be able to go back to that building where you and a couple of other other friends work. And a major part of the part of my day that I enjoyed was when we all had lunch together, we would just sit there and talk about stuff kind of like we do every week together. And I always just remember like that was the hardest part about not being able to have my position anymore of I didn't realize how much work was about the people that you're around. And you're right. The students also can definitely make an environment work. And so the adults as well. And everybody, I'm sure, has that colleague that they don't really necessarily get along with. And they just have to kind of find a way to work through it together. But I'm sure it brings up friction in their day. At the same time, I just always keep going back to how much should we think about that comment about love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. And I just kind of wonder... Is that just false advertising? And should we be totally thinking that differently? Instead, find a job, make as much money as you can and work as little as you can. And then you'll be truly happy because you'll have more leisure time. Yeah, I think that many of the quotes we're talking about from people that say that your work should be your passion and your love are people that have tremendously powerful, creative, and jobs in which they control the situation. So, okay, Dustin Hoffman, Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett, these are people that could create things at their will or are doing creative things who could control the situation to some degree. And that's not selling shoes at DSW. That is being Steve Jobs and saying, I'm gonna dedicate billions of dollars towards creating this brand new thing where I'm the mastermind of and all glory goes to me. Okay, well, yeah, I'm sure you can feel pretty effective because you control the entire situation and everybody's working at your will because you can do this. And you're the one person that is leading them to tremendous profits. I don't know if the people that are underneath them really want to do that. I know Johnny Ive left Apple and he was the guy that did the specific design for all these products that were so successful. I'm sure Henry Ford felt really good about being able to create because he could create anything he wanted. He had that power. But again, selling shoes at DSW, I'm not sure this motto is up on the wall. It's interesting you brought up Henry Ford, right? Because he, of course, was the guy at the top making decisions. But he was also one of the first people that gets credited with reducing the workday for workers, right? Paying the workers more. And while you could still say the work was tough at a Ford plant and all of that, you could say it was a major improvement than people who were not working at a Ford plant. And also he was compensating them in a manner that he, they could afford, you know, a basic kind of middle-class existence at that point in America. And I guess you could say people didn't necessarily maybe like going to the factory, but the rewards were enough. I guess I always just keep going with, well, if we don't like to work and this article definitely, I don't know, I felt like it was definitely kind of shaded towards the idea of 
work is kind of a dehumanizing place and we should be looking at trying to get out of it or we should at least be trying to recognize how lots of workers are not treated well. One of the things I just kept going to is, well, what's the solution? Not working? And then if we're not working, does that just mean more leisure time? Because then I started asking questions like, do we really need more leisure in our lives? And I was thinking more about COVID and how over the last year, I feel like we've all had maybe a little extra leisure time in our life than maybe we've ever had before. And I just kind of started wondering, like, does that just mean more Netflix, more unscheduled time for lots of people? And is that really a good thing? Yeah, I guess it depends entirely on what your leisure time is made up of. This article had a lot of things that dove into that. And part of it was I was reflecting on leisure time because they talked about the role of women in households as what were then referred to as homemakers. And they're doing lots of things. And so leisure time didn't really exist for them because there was always candles that need to be made or butter or whatever. And that now we have a lot of these things done for us. And that's changed that dynamic a little bit. But yeah, we have tons of time. And during COVID, I'm not sure what to do with it, especially with little kids. I'm pretty sure my wife and I keep ourselves occupied reading and whatnot, but there's not a lot to do in winter in Michigan when you can't go to any museums, you can't really meet with many other people. So the leisure time is not a great trade-off. That said, in the new work from home environment, it seems that leisure time is disappearing. People are more effective since they're working at home in most businesses report, but they're also working more because there is no free time. And I know personally for myself, we've moved to using Microsoft Teams. And instead of just ignoring my email after five o'clock when I feel like I'm done for the day, I have notifications popping up on my phone of messages from students up until well past I go to bed. I mean, I turn my phone off, so I'm not responding then. But the idea of the strict differentiation between leisure time and work time seems to be disappearing. Right. People talk about how they're kind of expected to be available 24 hours a day, emails that can kind of buzz on their phone that they can quickly look at. And it seems like in a way, maybe this is a good thing. The idea of work has become something that's spread out throughout the day, but the intensity or the idea that for this eight hour period, you're expected to be working has sort of shifted, right? I think a lot of places have found like, hey, if our workers are at home and things are getting done, we don't really care if they answer the email at 6 p.m. or at 3 p.m. We don't really care if somebody goes to pick up their kids at school or whatever at 1 p.m. Whereas there was that old fashioned mindset of you go to work and you work and that's what you do. And if you need to do something else, then you take a day off, right? That seems to really shift. But I just keep going back to this idea of leisure. And obviously, it's something that's in the eye of the beholder. You know, somebody who once had that dream of, oh, my wife and I were going to go sit on a beach in Cancun. And I remember we did that. And then within a couple of minutes, we were personally just kind of bored. And we need to go do something. We need to go march <laughs> around. Some people, that is their perfect idea of leisure. But I just kind of wonder if that's what you dream of all day. I think people at some point need more structure. I, I think about the history of the world. And it's all built on work, right? It's all built on people going to work. And the whole social order of the world is based upon a few people at the top and a lot of people at the bottom of the social pyramid. And everybody's working somewhere. Everybody's working some kind of a set job. And if work is not the grounding factor of what people are thinking about what they should be doing or how they identify themselves, how does the world order work then? I just think about jobs are so important to filling people's time, giving people something to do, giving them identity, making them feel a sense of purpose, even if they hate that purpose. It's hard for me to imagine another place without it. Yeah, absolutely. I That's one of the things that people say when they retire is they're not, that's that doesn't make them as happy as they thought they would be. And that most people looking back on their lives find the time where they felt the most joy was the time when they're busiest, when they had smallish children and they were working and they're being generative at work and they had this fulfilling home life that was at time busy and hectic, but yet that was their time. So it's without it, it's, there's got to be a bit of a vacuum. I know some people have transitioned to retirement smoothly, but it doesn't seem to be that that's the case for everybody. I've seen a lot of senior citizens get on buses and end up at casinos. <laughs> You know, I guess that's a way to kill time. And, and that's definitely a fine activity. I just, um, you just kind of see like what leisure maybe does look at for some people. And obviously I'm judging here a little bit, but it does seem like the productivity part. And I like that you brought up the idea of 
the article talking about women's work, especially, and how there were tons of jobs that needed to get done back in the early founding of our republic. Things like, as you said, making butter or sewing clothes or making rope or getting water or boiling water. And it's interesting that a lot of those activities became something known as crafts. And it was almost a way to sort of belittle the kind of work and contribution that a lot of women were doing around the Republic, right? And to this day, it's kind of interesting when you look at what's considered a craft. Nowadays, a lot of our hobbies are considered crafts. My dad loves to spend time making wood chairs. It's kind of a craft. It's a hobby. But instead of us considering it work, where he spends 10, 12 hours a day doing it, we still kind of look at it as sort of this niche, oh, isn't that cute kind of thing? And think about that for anybody who sews or knits or does art. We don't necessarily give that sort of practice, like the kind of respect that we give of somebody who like leaves their house to go to a, like a more traditional job. Well, yes, but it's also interesting that that's what humans seek out. So in the absence of work, people do what would be formally considered work. They're making candles. I know my kids like making candles. I don't think they'd like doing it 12 hours a day in a mill in Boston in the 19, in the 1800s. Your dad likes making furniture. Absolutely. It's a way for him to be generative. Do you think he'd still like it if he did it 12 hours a day with some foreman barking down his neck? But yet we're looking for work, even the, in our leisure time. And that's an interesting thing. I'm a guy that likes to build things. I'm a guy that sometimes brews beer. It's something that makes me feel good and feel productive, but it's work, right? We're just finding work of our choice. No, that's exactly it, right? I mean, even if you're making a popsicle stick birdhouse or you're doing something, I mean, we've got a billion different craft kits around here for our kids to kind of do. And every once in a while, they'll get really interested in it. And it is, it's a form of work. Back a long time ago, it was important work to making sure your household was able to run. I mean, you think about people living out on the prairie and all day long, there was always another chore to get done, right? There was always something. If anything, time was the enemy. Whereas nowadays, almost things have become a little bit easier that I feel like we've been able to sort of sit here and ask ourselves, well, why am I having to do the, even the work that I'm doing? Or is it just that the work is so specialized nowadays that so many of us just never see that end result? And that's why we question all of these things. Or they go home, as the article talked about in the 1950s, these men working in offices and doing things like that. And I say men because they mostly were men. They go home and do little carpentry projects. I was talking to my mom about this. My grandfather was a guy who was too old to fight in World War II and was fairly old when I knew him. But he had his own business, but he'd go home and build a grandfather clock or he'd build a desk because it was a way to feel like he has an end in sight. And this is a guy that also built homes. I mean, he was being fairly productive, but it was just something to control. And I think that's what trying to fulfill that point of feeling generative and productive. And that's these hobbies, whether it's building ships in bottles or doing whatever, you are feeling like you're productive and you're getting scratching that work niche. And I feel like we do need work. Do you think there's any connection with the idea, and you and I have talked about this on previous podcasts, with how there's a certain kind of work, a work that usually requires a college degree that society looks more favorably upon than a trade, right? Than construction or plumbing or electricity. And yet those trades almost seem to have more characteristics that fit the craft. And yet the craft, of course, we've put off to the side as that's a hobby. That's something you do outside of the work that we respect. Do you think there's a connection there? I wonder if there is. I've been thinking about this because I have some friends that, I have one friend that was a plumber and now is a physician's assistant and he didn't like being a plumber. But I wonder if that has to do with the status more than it has to do with the work itself. Certainly makes more money and is of higher status now. I feel more fulfilled when I finish a project, whether it's a plumbing project or drywalling or whatever it is, I feel really fulfilled. Now, I don't know if that'll be the case if that was my full-time job, but I think there's a big part of this that is status that you allude to in that one of my first questions to people when I meet them is, oh, so what do you do? What's your job? And it kind of leads me because then I can ask them a question that I might be interested in. Like, oh, you're an air traffic controller. That's really interesting. What do you do up there? Are you like really interested all the time? Or are you just going through the motions, getting the planes lined up? but it defines who this person is you're having a conversation with if you know what they do. 
And I think I wonder if people say like, oh, well, I'm a carpenter, if that would be looked down upon. In fact, I'd be more impressed, and I think you would as well. Right. Well, you talked about the idea how you feel very fulfilled when you're doing those projects. And that to me is exactly the autonomy mastery purpose, right? Here you are working on your own schedule. You're probably having to learn a lot of skills that you don't have at the moment to make the project work. And then you see the end result. And I do think there's a lot to that about what we do all day. And one of the things that the article brings up again is the rise of gig work in our society. And gig work would be people who drive for Uber or work for DoorDash. And basically they take a job, they make a few dollars, and then they're done with that job. And at the same time, these workers are allowed to pick which jobs they want. And based upon their performance, they get certain ratings and they can go over and over. This article was very harsh, I thought, towards gig work as it's the rise of the new way where people are making sort of less money. There's algorithms that kind of decide how much they're going to pay out per job. And they pay just enough to keep the worker working, but not exactly enough for that worker to make enough money to, to support themselves. But I kind of thought, isn't gig work, though, maybe the absolute perfect solution to lots of people that feel disillusioned with their jobs? Here are people that can now just choose when they want to work. They don't have to be emotionally connected to a business. They don't have to feel like they should be doing even more for a place. They just do the job. It's transactional and they move on to the next one if they want it. Don't you think that's a sort of a natural rise or, or, or response to how people feel about work? Yeah. If you said this 20 years ago, you said, okay, there's going to be this job where you're just going to do it when you want at whatever time and for as long as you want and your compensation would come, and you wouldn't have a boss breathing down your neck, people would be pretty happy with it, I think. And they'd be, oh, yeah, this is a great job. It fits my schedule. I can do what I want. This is awesome. I think the two things stand in the way. One, the compensation that you spoke about, because for the most part, these businesses in the gig economy are losing money or barely breaking even, and so they're compensating people just enough to get them to do it. And by the way, people I don't think really understand depreciation of their vehicles or how much it actually costs to have a vehicle. And that further makes their compensation lower because they think they're pocketing a hundred bucks of the day of after the end of the day of driving around for DoorDash, but they don't realize that they've done $50 worth of wear and tear on their vehicle. Two, the other aspect of this is the status thing. Like I'm serving somebody else. I'm picking somebody else and taking them to the airport. I mean, early COVID, I had some time on my hands. I thought about, I was talking to a student who made a hundred, who's making like a thousand bucks a week doing DoorDash. I thought I got some time to kill. I could go drive some, deliver some stuff. And I have to be honest, the biggest thing that stood in my way is the status aspect. What if I'm delivering to one of my friend, my son's friend's parents? I'm like, oh, hey, here's your Chipotle. And then like, would they look down on me? How would that reflect on my family? So I think there's a status part of this as well. Hopefully they would give you a bigger tip. Yeah, now you can do the tip afterwards. So maybe they do that. Or maybe they write me a little note that said like, your car sucks, by the way, too. Every once in a while, I've, I've ridden in an Uber or I've met somebody who works for DoorDash and I've, I've tried to ask them like, hey, do you like it? What's going on? Do they treat you well? And I've never had somebody just sit there and bash any of the corporations or bash the job. At the same time, they don't seem to say like, I found my passion in life. They just sort of say like, eh, it's a job. And I was like, okay. And the one thing though that every one of them has told me is, they don't just work for one of them. Like this guy's like, yeah, I work for Uber and I work for Lyft at the same time. And I just am constantly waiting for the next best gig to pop up. And then I just take it. I don't know. I thought it was interesting. The only thing I always kept thinking is to me, wouldn't the gig economy maybe be your best argument for wanting to have some sort of socialized healthcare of if you could at least cover people's healthcare expenses then maybe the gig economy could work. And I wonder if it actually brings people more satisfaction. Work when you want, take the gig, and then when you don't, you don't have to. But the idea that people's healthcare might be covered. That would help, and that would play a small role. But the article starts with this woman that's working like two jobs at Dunkin' Donuts and somewhere else and passes away in her car because she can't sleep because she's working all the time. And it made me think of uh, my neighbor in California who seemed to have four or five jobs. He was always working and he put together a nice living. But ultimately, the compensation is not enough in order to make people have a fulfilling lives. I mean, this woman was making like 40 grand working something like 14 hours a day. It's just not sustainable. You and I both know that happiness is correlated with income up to about 70000 a year. And beyond that, it's not. 
well, can we get people to 70,000 a year in the gig economy where they have enough leisure time to enjoy themselves? Because if we can, they'll be fine. But if they're scraping around 30, 40,000, they don't have a safe or decent place to live, then it doesn't matter much. And that's where the federal minimum wage of $15 an hour, which most citizens are in favor of and seems unlikely to pass through Congress, could be a big effect, although an economist would tell you that it would create fewer jobs. That's interesting. The service worker, as you spoke of, and it was kind of a, a sad story because she ends up, um, I believe she was killed in her car while she was trying to sleep in between jobs. Am I right on that? Yeah, from inhaling exhaust and uh, she had a tank of gas in the back of the seat for some reason. So it was the fumes that killed her. Yeah. And one of the things is you forget that a lot of our jobs in our economy are service-based jobs. And these are also the jobs that have been crushed the most during COVID with the shutdowns and with so many service sectors being closed down. And you're right. You do realize that a lot of people, they do work hard. They might not even like their job, but they are working hard. And there's just sort of a certain level of, of income that they can make and stuff like that. And I don't know if I have, a, obviously, a solution for that. And I guess some people, the more cynical, might say, well, that lady made some bad choices when she was in public school. And therefore, that's how she ended up with what she got. But to me, it's like, but this is the reality for so many people. And when you just sort of float out ideas like, look, love what you do, and you'll never work another day in your life. I don't know if I necessarily have an answer for her or for anybody else. Maybe she loved her job at Dunkin Donuts. Don't get me wrong. But maybe she also didn't and was just like, look, this is what I know so that I can try to support myself and my loved ones. And it just was a heart wrenching story to kind of read. And I don't necessarily have a solution either. I don't think that necessarily people are unhappy with their work. It's just if they had decent compensation. I have a friend that worked at Dunkin' Donuts, and now he works for uh, designing driverless cars. But he loved working at Dunkin' Donuts. It was actually Tim Hortons. Because when somebody came in and wanted a bear claw and had him slice it open and butter the inside, he loved it. Because the happiness he was making this person who was about to have a heart attack was something special. And I heard him talk more glowingly about that job than his current job. And so I think there can be satisfaction there. It's tied to compensation. But most businesses don't understand this. And you've read about this, and so have I, that businesses that pay their workers more have more sales. And the New Yorker did an article about this years ago, but it's still true. Trader Joe's and Costco, they pay their workers a lot, but they stick around and they're in a good mood and they get more sales because the workers are there and happy. And I think that compensation piece is underrated. Because most businesses look at their compensation and say, well, we can't pay the workers that much. As the article said, $15 an hour at Dunkin' Donuts was a non-starter, said the CEO making $15 million a year. However, that would, I'm sure, bring up more sales because people would be better workers. So compensation could be the biggest part of this. And you and I could obviously cite minimum wage studies that argue minimum wage is good, minimum wage is bad. Do you think instead of a federal minimum wage... Do you think they should base it on regions in terms of cost of living? Some places are really expensive, like New York City or San Francisco, and therefore probably a $15 an hour or higher minimum wage would be more useful. But if you're down in the South in Mississippi, I don't know, do you, is it possible that the number should be lower? And therefore, instead of a blanket policy, do you think it'd be smarter if they broke it up? Or maybe the jobs would move as a result of the $15 an hour minimum wage. And there'd be uh, some sort of niche location where the compensation is high and the cost of living is low. And that's where people would migrate to. It would have interesting effects. I see your point though. Like it makes more sense for San Francisco to have a $20 an hour minimum wage and to have Mobile, Alabama at 10. But I just think it's hard to do because you can't rely on those municipalities to work in the best interest of their workers. Right. It's interesting because you have seen slowly some cities like Seattle across the country make their own decisions about what a minimum wage should be. But it is interesting that when you have so many people across the country working in service industries, this issue does not seem like it's that politically popular. I mean, I remember it coming up a little bit in the last presidential election, but it wasn't like this was a driving focus or anything like that. Yeah, and but Florida passed it, despite the fact that Florida is conservative, voted conservative in the presidential election, has extremely conservative governor. They voted for a $15 minimum wage because 
that's what people want. They see it as a good starting point. And I do too. I mean, sure, I'd love my kids to be working at age 18 and make $8 an hour and realize how the value of money. However, somebody that's older than that or just doesn't have as many resources or didn't have the same starting point as their fellow citizens, that's a pretty rough way to go. Definitely. And it also makes me wonder about unions. And the article does talk about unions and how 30, 40, 50 years ago, America, tell me if I'm wrong, was it four out of 10 people were part of a union or three out of 10 in America? Uh, I think it was four out of 10 peaking in the 1970s. That peaks. And now I think we're down to about one out of 10 Americans are associated with a union. Unions over the last 30 years have almost become a dirty word when you talk about them and, and stuff like that. And it's interesting because unions obviously are, are sort of at least associated with, with increasing wages and with trying to think about their workers in terms of also having a decent retirement and health care. But here was a question I was starting to think about of, okay, so here we are in a lesser unionized society is, do you think in the 70s, one of the mistakes that unions made is they were so hyper-focused on wages and benefits, which is what they're supposed to do when they negotiate, that they should have also worked to try to unionize service workers, service workers in the fast food industry, in the hotel industry, and tried to build up national unions that way. And then at the same time, do you think unions, and I think about this often with like GM and Ford, I always wondered why didn't the unions when they were flush with cash and had a lot more clout and power, why didn't they buy a significant percentage of those companies stock <laughs> and demand board seats and take a seat at the table where they were having to now help run the company for the benefit of the company, but also the worker. And I wonder if that would have maybe made better long-term decisions about contracts, but also about their workers' lives. And I've just always thought, why didn't they go that route? Well, unions are their own worst enemy because they fight for greater compensation to the degree which the companies are no longer profitable and the businesses leave, which happened for the most part in the 80s in that businesses left the states or the countries where the unions were to go to less unionized, lower income, lower uh, wage states, or they replaced them with robots. And so unions are so face focused on the short run compensation, then that would lead to their worst instincts. And I think if they had corporate board seats, as you suggested, then the, they would just make even worse decisions because the decision, do we want to keep this unprofitable plant open? Yes, because there's people that work there. If the unions are always voting yes, it just leads to less profitable companies. And by the way, oh yeah, GM went broke and so did Chrysler and they Jeep got sold off to Chrysler. And it's These companies are not like long-term fulfilling places in terms of profits. And I think the unions probably would have lost their seats. All that right. said, when I'm talking to my union rep about what I want for my business, for my next uh, for my next deal with the company with the district, it's money. I want the money. I don't care if I have to teach more kids. I don't have to care if I have to teach longer hours. I want the money. Give me the steps. Give me the higher salary, and because that's what I'm working for. I want to make the money to feed my family, to provide, to do and do other leisure things. I'm just like everybody else. It's about the money for the union. And that's what is driving them to the situations where the businesses abandon the unions as readily as they can. And that's true. It, there's sort of a short-term thought of, well, we're here to benefit for the people that are here currently, right? It just seems though like it's counterintuitive in terms of, but don't you want the long-term help? Because look at how things have gone. Now, I'm not saying that the unions would have helped made better decisions, but I do think nobody was maybe thinking about what's the long-term health for these workers or to make sure there are jobs or to make sure that we're producing these automobiles in American factories for American jobs and stuff like that. And I just kind of found it interesting. And it just seems like maybe also the way that the job is maybe could be more fulfilling possibly. I don't know, obviously, but I just thought that was out there and, and something just to kind of think about. Yeah. I mean, union's job is to fight for the short run. And that is helping the workers that are in the union at that time, and perhaps also guaranteeing the retirement which the unions are based on, they're the workers work for. And so that's their fight. But a lot of these things are evaporating. 
my uncle is a bricklayer at a unionized one for years and years and years and years. And he was telling me there's going to be no more union bricklayers because the walls come pre-assembled at factories where non-unionized workers put them together. And then they come to the site and they just lean them up and you don't need to lay brick anymore. And the unions have created this. Now, that said, what were they going to do? Keep the wages really low so that this job would continue to exist in perpetuity because we're going to have worse wages for a job that's very physically demanding? I don't think that's the answer either. Well, that's a good point. The rise of robotics, the rise of automation. What does that do? Is this an opportunity to get everybody out of these kinds of jobs that we quote unquote decided were not very fulfilling? Or is this just the destruction of more opportunities for more for people to make income, which is obviously a major part of being able to live at all? How do you see the future playing out in all of this stuff then? Well, everything is getting cheaper except labor. And so providing the capital, the robots, the machines is getting cheaper. The basic resources are getting cheaper because we found more efficient ways to streamline that. The expensive thing is still the labor. So how do you get rid of the labor or how do you minimize the labor? And you mentioned Uber before and those gig type companies. That's ultimately they want. They don't want workers driving food for DoorDash. They want driverless cars driving cars for DoorDash because once we get this thing effective, then we can make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper through better AI, better algorithms, better driverless cars. But this article seems to focus about happiness. And that seems to be a major part of, you're right, maybe there'll be jobs. There's always a new job that comes with a technical trend. Should we care if people are happy going to work? Well, I think so. I want to be happy when I go to work. And I imagine everybody wants to be happy. But I think you can find happiness. Now, that said, that's coming from a guy who's had like the same job for 22 years with very little variation. I've done some side gigs, but for the most part, I've been teaching. And I don't know that much about other jobs. I kind of want to say like I could retire in three years and be a handyman and just go to people's houses and install dishwashers and uh, garbage disposals. And I don't know if that would be that fulfilling. I'd probably be seen as less uh, prestigious because teachers, as you know, occupy the highest realm of prestige. But maybe I'll be feel good too. It's hard for me to say because I've only had one job. I know my dad felt fulfilled most of the time as a college professor. My mom felt fulfilled at, for the most part as a librarian. But these are similar jobs. And ultimately, the things that made them frustrated and the things that make me frustrated are poor management or when our leaders are not making the right choice and we feel bound to them. But I have not seen much of that myself. It does make me wonder if it's just always easier to judge somebody else's job or somebody else's life and to say, oh my God, they got a cush job. They only have to do this or man, like they, they do this. That must be amazing. And it's one of those things where it's always better on the other side. And let's face it, every job probably has its pros and its cons. And sort of what you just said made me think of a section of a book, you and I have a favorite travel writer, Paul Thoreau, and he wrote a book called The Last Train to Zona, uh, Zona Verde. And in the book, he goes to visit the sand people who are living in Southern Africa. And the sand people were like the original hunter gatherers from 10,000 years ago. And there are still some people that are living out there, living every day, just hunting and gathering their food, just sort of living that lifestyle. That is their work is just trying to make it to another day, basically finding food. And so he goes and he meets these people and he goes on a walkabout and they go hunting together. Together and he's out there all day long and they're ducking in the sand of the desert as they're waiting for another animal to go kill. They're eating things over an open fire. And he's just like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. This is what we as humans were meant to do was just live each day to the fullest and just have enough in our bellies to do it again the next day. And then when they're done, they end up going back to this like kind of slum ramshackled like area where some other sand people are living. And he's like, what's going on? Like, why are we here? And they're like, well, this is where we live. And there's like Coca-Cola bottles and advertisements and just clothes that have come from like Goodwill that have been dropped off. And he's like, wait, I thought we lived out in the forest. I thought we lived out in the land getting ready to hunt again. And they were like, no, we stopped doing that a long time ago. We thought you just wanted to see what it's like. And we just thought we'd take you on a walkabout. But none of us actually do that all the time. It's really hard. And he's like, oh, I guess the romanticism of this dream, this, this life 
is not very good. And as you said, life today is pretty easy when you can just kind of order things online and they get delivered to you, right? When you can just find cheap food and it's a lot easier than trying to go out there and see what nature's got for you each day. And I just kind of keep wondering, is it possible that this is sort of the best of all possible worlds when it comes to work? We need it. It's easier today than it was 100 years ago. Maybe it's not as fulfilling, but isn't that maybe also that shows how great it is, is that now we have the time to sit around and kind of realize how miserable we are at work. Yeah. And the romanticism of, you know, living on the uh, frontier and building your own home and all that stuff is hard. And that the like, we like the imagery of it, but the reality is different. When I'm working from home and I'm standing in my computer in my pajama bottoms and, oh, it's a little cold in this house. I'll just use my phone to adjust the thermostat because I can do that. I mean, it's a pretty luxurious existence and the commute can't be beat. We're not making pins back in the uh, back in England in the 1700s. It's a pretty big, pretty good gig. And maybe we should just find whatever fulfillment we can at whatever job it is we have. Totally. Final question for you then. I was thinking a lot about sports. You and I have obviously coached sports. We've watched a lot of sports. We have to watch biographies every once in a while of the great minds like Bobby Knight or Tom Izzo and how did they get their team to perform? And all I could think is sports cliches. Give everything. To get something you've never had, you've got to do something you've never done. You have to go the extra mile, run, work. It's all about work. Do you think sports cliches can help us or hurt us when we try to think about real life and real jobs? I think it can help some people become more motivated to do the job to completion. And that some people want to feel, if they feel part of a team, then they'll do a better job. I have been very, very uninterested in these motivational tactics because it just doesn't bring about what I want. I, I'd rather just do it myself. I don't need to have this. Not to say I'm great, it just doesn't ring for me. And maybe I'm doing a bad job, and I don't know that, and I'm not willing to go the next mile because I don't care about the cliche. But I think it does bring people together, and if they have a vision for what we're doing. I know that I feel better if my administration says, hey, we're doing this thing, and here's why we're doing it. That makes me understand the situation say, okay, that's fair, that, that there's a reason behind this. But when I'm told to do this thing and there's no reason given or a bad reason given, then I'm less motivated to say, all right, yes, let's really do this. And what's interesting is sports kind of take away the autonomy, right? Usually it's don't question me, just get on the line and start running and we'll tell you when you're done. However, sports do offer the mastery and the purpose part if you're successful, I guess. But I also just think, you know, so many people that played for Bobby Knight or played for these coaches, they're like, oh my gosh, I learned so much about life. And it's like, well, you were just in a gym working really hard, getting sweaty and, and obviously mastering an interesting niche of life. But a lot of them feel like, no, I'm successful because of what I went through. And I can never decide. So many people point to sports as the great metaphor that explains how life works. And if we're all trying to find meaning in our jobs, can possibly we find answers there? Now, is the meaning found when there's success? Like at the end of the season, when Bobby Knight leads you to the national championship, after all the horrible abuse you've suffered under him, and you see the success, then you see the lesson. And it makes sense. Is the lesson found if you're on a losing team? It's a great question. And there is actually a book that I think kind of looks into this. It's by Pat Conroy called My Losing Season, where he played at VMI on the basketball team and they lost like every game. And I think in some ways, maybe the losing just teaches you that, look, not everything's a fairy tale ending where you win all the time. Sometimes you're just going to be on bad teams and bad situations where you're going to lose all the time. And as long as you keep showing up, then maybe you're a winner. Yeah, and I've started that book. Pat Conroy is one of my favorite authors, but I had struggled with that book. Uh, but I just because I don't understand the situation. I never played on a basketball team other than just pick up with my friends. But it is, uh, I think the real takeaway from those quotes and what we hear is from the success and that the ends, the means are, are rationalized by the ends and that it all makes sense after it's all said and done. And you, that's when the learning took place is when you, well, the learning actually happened, but I saw that it made sense at the end, which comes back to my previous point. When there's a reason for this, 
and you understand why you're doing it, then you feel much more likely to do it and engaged by it and rewarded by it. One time my high school coach said, all right, I want you to go run a 430 mile. And on our team at us, it was at a stool meet and our teammates, there were six of us that could do that. And at the end of the race, we all finished together, six of us across the line and we're all angry because we wanted to beat each other. And he came over and said, how do you feel? And angry, frustrated. And he said, good, you'll be ready to go out that fast in a two mile. And my mind was blown. And later that season, when I did go out that fast in a two mile, which is much obviously further and harder, I was able to do it because of that experience. And I realized the brilliance after the fact. And it's only the success which made me reflect on, oh, that's why we did it. That's why it makes sense. That's why it was a good move. That's why it's good leadership. But if you don't have the success at the end, I'm not sure you see it. I was thinking is about my limited high school basketball career. And one year, I think we won two or three games. We were terrible. And I guess the only thing I can, I can take back to is a lot of what we talked about of at the end of the day, nobody quit, which I do think is kind of interesting because one of the big things I think in society, almost a lot of people can agree with is if you're on a team for a season, you can't quit. You have to finish the season out, right? I think most parents agree with that. Some parents will let their kids quit, but you have to finish it out, right? That's a big deal just to make it through, even if you're not having the greatest experience. But then I was thinking about that season of we didn't quit. Every day we came, we tried to get better. I'm not sure if we ever did. But then my teammates and the experience around it, and you and I talked about how work for a lot of people is working with the people they like, and that that brings a sense of enjoyment. And we had a lot of fun on the bus rides, right? And we had a lot of fun other than losing, there was fun around the experience. And I just wonder if that possibly does bring up the possible uh, connection to work and sports, and maybe they are more connected. I think there is something to be gained from losing, but it's hard to have these big quotes that go along with it. My first soccer team I was on that my father coached, we lost every single game and he had some critical other parents. And Ultimately, we took away from it what we did. We enjoyed playing soccer. We played together and all of us went on to play a little more in some other fashion or another. And there is something to be gained from that. Also learned on the first game, the goalie can't run out of the goal and pick up the ball at midfield because that would be a lot easier. That's true. Uh, I guess just a quick final, final question for you is, did you ever see the movie Wally? Nope. In Wally, the humans have basically got the robots doing everything for them and they're just riding around on essentially carts that just move them everywhere and all they're doing is staring at a screen and that is their day and they seem kind of bored and unfulfilled and I just sort of wondered do you think that's ever possible for us as humanity is just to get to the point where we never have to work again your favorite you know macro economist John Maynard Keynes he predicted that the workday would reduce to like 15 hours a day and maybe even go to zero at some point in the future because of how productive we were and clearly that's not happened as we're working more do you, could you ever see a day though where just humans have solved the work conundrum and nobody has to do it I thought you were going to describe to me a movie. You just described to me today where people just roll around looking at their screens all the time. Can you please describe for me the movie? Because I, I, I understand the reality. I just don't understand what else you're saying. <laughs> That's a good point. I don't know. I, I, I think it's interesting. And yet, obviously, you and I are going to probably get up tomorrow and go to work. Oh, yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to work. We're going to be meeting with half our kids and getting through things and making some money and feeling kind of effective and maybe it'll be great. Yes. Yes. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week and I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely. Good to chat with you, Zach. Take care.